Welcome to the IPv6 Buzz podcast, where we dare to dive into the 128-bit address space wormhole. A quick reminder, there's sponsorship opportunities available for IPv6 Buzz and all the other Packet Pusher podcast shows. So if you're interested, go to packetpushers.net slash sponsorship. You can get all the details. And if you got something cool working with IPv6, then we want to hear from you. Join us on the IPv6 Buzz. Tell us how you got something really interesting working with V6. I'm Ed Horley with my co-host Tom Goffin and Scott Hogan. Today, we're going to be talking with Nick Braggio about uh, the status of his of, of his update to RFC 6724, which is, uh, for those that aren't aware, is sort of a, a fix for ULA, <laughs> right, Nick? Welcome to the show. Hey, glad to be here again. Always so, fun. <laughs> so let's, let's, let's just dive in and, and, and sort of talk about what the original problem was. I know you've been on the show before talking, talking around this, but let's, let's, for those folks that maybe didn't catch that one, what's the overview of the problem? Uh, what's currently going on with RFC 6724, maybe a little bit about 6724 itself. Yeah, for sure. Um, so 6724 is the source address selection RFC. Um, it's a very interesting read for folks that, uh, that want to go and, and get really, really nerdy with the, uh, uh, you know, with the details there. Um, but but essentially, um, one of the things that, you know, we discovered, and I think, you know, it was sort of a, you know, problem in plain sight that a lot of people knew about, but, uh, you know, doing a lot of work on the uh, IPv6 only initiative, this was something uh, as part of the transition that we kept seeing over and over was that um, when ULA is enabled and you have a dual stack network, the um, IPv6 behavior is that um, it essentially won't be used. Um, so, for example, if you have a quad A record and an A record, at, you know, and the quad A is pointing towards a ULA address, and you have a ULA address on your uh, host, and uh, you're also running legacy IP, it will just default to using IPv4, which is a little bit counter to right or wrong the expectations that we've all, you know, most of us have had that. Um, if IPv6 is, in the, is enabled, it will use IPv6. Uh, and so essentially it's a, it's a problem in that it, illust- it, it, it exhibits behavior that's a bit, a bit unexpected, even though if you look through the, the RFC, it's sort of in there that way. Um, but what we've aimed to do is essentially demote IPv4 below all IPv6, other than the deprecated blocks that are, you know, like the three FFE and uh, you know the other ones that are precedent one. Yeah. So, like at a high level, when we only had IPv4, the source address selection was easy. It was only one address, one interface, one default route, one protocol, and that one address was chosen. When you run both protocols and you have multiple IPv6 addresses, maybe a DHCP v6 address and or a Slack temporary or privacy and a link local and v4. <laughs> it's like, which one do I choose? And that's what 6724 says is, which one do I choose when I have a variety? And, and there's a preference, you know, and that's what you're saying is, that if you had both v4 and v6 but your v6 address was unique local which implies that it doesn't have internet access it's a private v6 network but a v4 address even if your v4 address is rfc 1918 which is a private address that could be natted and could lead to the internet where your ula address would never lead to the internet because there's no nat 66 
as it's officially defined as an RFC. So your host prefers V4 in that case. Yes. Yep. Correct. And and it's just, you know, because V6 is like you mentioned, you know, there's, there's, you're going to have by design, a, a, you know, a, a bag of IPv6 addresses on every interface. It's not just per host, it's per interface. So mm-hmm. when you have that on there, the expectation that I always had, again, you know, as I started doing V6, I never really did any ULA. You know, I never had any reason to. I always had GUA space to use, mm-hmm. but it started coming up in questions. And so I had to sort of lab it out and figure it out. And and it was just doing not what I expected. It was never using the ULA addresses, you know, because as we've said over and over and over again, you know, don't memorize addresses, use DNS. So I did the, you know, I did the needful and I put all my stuff in DNS, local DNS, right? You never, never put ULA in global DNS that, uh, that, that, that'll make people unhappy. Um, but, you know, I, so I did all of those things, but it was never sourcing from my ULA addresses when I also had V4 and an A record configured. Um, so this has been a very uh, involved process. Um, I think you've got we've done shows on the prior drafts that were written, um, which you know you guys were you know very informative and and uh, helpful in, in in drafting those as well. So you're familiar, but you know we we wrote a draft that laid out the problems. Um, it proposed no solutions. It simply said, you know, here are the issues that you run into when you try to do ULA. Um, that, you know, was adopted as a, you know, an adopted working group draft within the V6 Ops working group and the ITF. And then that sort of birthed the uh, current draft, which is in six man, which the difference between those one is operations and one is maintenance. And so it is essentially uh, to the, the goal of that draft is to update RFC 6724 to change that that preference. Yeah, and I, I think what's important for the audience to understand is we originally uh, have had the mantra that you know if if V6 is enabled and on, it's it's preferred and used by default, right? And this ULA status is counter to, <laughs> to that to that statement, right? that you can have v6 on you can have ula enabled and it won't be used by default right so right so so i think that's it, it's just as an industry overall we we fit into this category of like oh well this is a weird exception that probably was never intended to be there in in terms of like sort of how we were originally thinking thinking through the problem space but the reality is is the way the interpretation of 6724 works um, it absolutely means that ULA is not preferred that way, but it also has a very strange attribute about it because it represents all of IPv4 in an IPv6 address also, right? Yeah. Which is part of the part of the sort of the crux of of the structural issue. And I think it's it's sort of a strange read when you're reading 6724 because you're talking about effectively v4 space, but it's all defined as mm-hmm. IPv6 address space, right? Yeah, because even if you did concoct a NAT66 type function at your internet edge. And you were using V4 and ULA in a dual protocol configuration, the ULA address space never gets used to even reach the NAT66 to then get translated into a global address out on the internet. V4 is constantly being used instead of ULA. Right. 
yeah, that's I guess, definitely this. Tr- this I guess we're kind of also talking around maybe a larger question around like what is the actual operational use case that justifies the use of ULA in the first place? <laughs> yeah, I, I think that may have played a role, and I, you know, I, obviously, I wasn't part of the twenty uh, twelve RFC, um, so I don't know what the motivations are. And honestly, I never went back and read the threads, um, which I'm sure are in the archive. But, you know, there are very limited use cases for ULA. Um, and I think that it was probably, and I'm again, I'm completely speculating here. It was probably um, motivation to essentially not use it. Um, but because like, you know, the fear has always been that, RFC 1918 space will be recreated and that will become a thing in IPv6. And that's counter to what the, you know, original uh, idea behind IPv6 was. It was supposed to do, you know, restore intent connectivity and ULA sort of would break that if you made it. Destroys the dream. To, <laughs> yes, it destroys the dream. Um, and and it, it's funny because within the IETF, I had one of the, sort of senior people. Oh, she said, yo, you're the ULA guy. And I was like, oh no, I don't want that label at all. (laughs) My goal is to to never use it. Like I just want it to be not an issue. Right, you do want it to work. I want it to work because it does have, you know, three or four valid use cases. Mm -hmm. But, you know, in my opinion, most of those use cases are when it's a single stack air gap network and then you're done, right? Or maybe print you know, whatever, but yeah, I think, well, I mean, to get back to Tom's original question, what's the use cases? I think, I think there are a couple that have, have come out now that folks have tried to operationally get a bunch of things to work with V6. And there's some corner cases where they're like, that doesn't work so well. So like, you know, multi-homing without PI space, right. Is yeah. problem problematic. Yeah. Could you solve it with, you know, MPT V6 or NAT66 with ULA running on your site? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> right. But it won't work if you're running dual stack. So that's a problem, right? Because most folks are going to start with IPv4 and then they're going to think they're enabling v6 and it's not going to work, right? So that's a structural gap. Um, And I think that's going to be an intuitive one that people leap to because that's how they do it in v4, right? So you're going to take what you know and carry it forward and, and attempt to actually get that to work. So let's go back and address that to make sure that we solve that problem. I guess I'm not convinced. Um, surprise, surprise. Well, I'm not trying to convince you. No. <laughs> I'm just <laughs> no, stating about not. the problem. <laughs> no, why but, would you? But, no, but, but I, I mean, I, I guess just like show me a show me any any solution that involves the use of ULA addresses. And my first question will be, why doesn't this work with, with GUA? Like what is, what am I getting when I use ULA? Yeah, I mean, if you have proper security boundaries and everything else, uh, using you know, global unicast addresses is appropriate. Uh, you know, I can see the argument like, hey, I don't want my nuclear plant, you know, having any chance of routing to public internet access resources. Like, yeah, let's keep that thing you know, offline entirely. I can well, see that or connect it. <laughs> yeah, or out of yeah, that's that's the other that's what I mean. Like proper security controls. Let's just unplug it from the internet. Let's air gap um, it. Yeah. So and the, then the, the, the USB out of the flash drive across the <laughs> that's right. Across the sneaker net. Gap. Sneaker net. It's the drop the USB key in the parking lot uh strategy. But I, I think um, you know, maybe out of band management networks, 
where you have to VPN in and we hand you a ULA address and that's the only way you can get across a VPN maybe to talk to resources that are designed as out-of-band management because they're sensitive? Yeah, I mean, those are those are use cases that are in the use case draft. Right. However, yeah. to- Tom's totally right. Like in, in a case where, <laughs> yes, where ULA will work, GOA will also work. You just, it's, I think it'll, there's It'll work the, properly too. You don't have to- Yeah, it'll work this. properly. The, the goal of this draft, and again, it's very, it's very narrowly scoped and we can talk about that a little bit in a minute, but it, the goal of this draft is to essentially create deterministic behavior where there arguably isn't any. Yes. Right. It's, and there's even not, small, it, yeah. Well, there's even small variations in terms of how OS behavior works with this stuff, which is concerning, right? In terms of the interpretation. <laughs> I don't know if I'd call them small, but. <laughs> <laughs> You know, depending on what your platform is, you're going to get wildly different behavior. Yeah. Yeah. I was trying to be polite on that one. (laughs) (laughs) Play that. I'll play that role. (laughs) The polite role. I don't, I don't see you doing that. Oh no. I'll play the the irreverent role there. It's, it's sort of my lot in life. But yes, yes. There's some pretty extreme differences in terms of the behavior sets uh, specifically around that. So I think, I think for the audience trying to, uh, you know, trying to get the right behavior uh, out of your environment is really important. And I think what this is trying to do is make it consistent for everyone, uh, and also inf- sort of also the inform the informed set of behaviors we'd like to see the OSs take on. So that way, you know, things become consistent over the long term. This certainly doesn't fix it in the short term, right, Nick? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. It doesn't. Um, because as we've noted in the past and you know, on the show and in the in the ULA draft, there are still operating systems that have, um, you know, the prior RFC pieces of it. Uh, what is it? 38, 30, 34, 34, 84. Yes. Um, that just, you know, that was 10 years ago and there's still like little pieces of that hanging around. So yeah, it's I a think, weird combination of like 3484 and 6724 and some of the OSs. like they sort of cherry pick yeah. like what they wanted at each one of those to get the behavior that they wanted. I think, I, I don't know. <laughs> like they do with pretty much every RFC. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think that at least for me, you know, as someone that has written RFPs in the past and has done, you know, worked, I've never worked at a vendor, but I've worked with vendors to sort of implement um, uh, like feature requests and things like that. Having it in a standards document is is it provides the ability to basically point at something. Oh, you need to match that Um, rather than not having that per se and just saying, I want you to do this behavior for me. And then they sort of have to make it up however you're describing it, which, you know. You've seen the you've seen the 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 old adage of describing an elephant for people that aren't that can't see it right. You know, it's well, yeah, this yeah. looks like a, you know. So that yeah. that uh, that's what we're aiming to do. Okay. Well, let's talk about what happened uh, at the ITF meeting and sort of what the response was to this. I, I guess we could start with a little bit of the mailing list and a little bit of the of the meeting set itself. Maybe you walk folks through sort of journey wise. Yeah. So this has been a, this has been a bit of a learn. I'm going to go on. A, I'm going to take us on another journey here. This has been a bit of a learning experience for me as well. Just learning how to um, efficiently operate within a standards body because um, I've sort of just been 
trying to figure this out on the fly um, through trial and error, you know, and the process takes a long time anyway, especially if you're, you know, kind of new to it. Um, but anyone that knows me knows that I can be a fair bit tenacious when there's something that I want. And so I've just been hammering away. And, and what I found is that, you know, if you want to make a sort of sweeping change like this, it you have to really have your ducks in a row for it. And if it's an existing standard, the, you know, the best way to do that is to find the people that originally wrote the document, you know, the document you want to update. And then instead of creating a new document that says, here's the, here's the thing, right? You just make an incremental update to an existing document. Um, and this was all sort of new to me. Like I didn't really know all of these things. I mean, it sort of makes sense to, you know, involve the people that were originally the authors, you know, if nothing else out of courtesy, but also what I found is um, I happen to know one of the uh, one of the original authors of 6724 because we're both in the research and education environment. And he's, you know, brilliant guy, super nice. I said, hey, what do you think about updating this? And he was all on board uh, with doing it. So um, I think that is probably the reason that we've had as much success as we have. So essentially we we created a document that does, um, we proposed I think three changes to 6724 in the original draft. Um, the most important of which was to uh, change the preference in the, in the default table um, of ULA to be above um, IPv4, or if you look at it from the other direction to demote IPv4 below all of IPv6, which I think is probably a, a better way to word it. Um, and so we we wrote this draft and we presented it, or we, we submitted it to the, to the mailing list, which is, you know, that's part of the process. And then when it comes time to have the meeting, you um, request a time slot to talk about it. And I'd done this before within the V6 ops group, but I'd never done it within the V6 man maintenance group, which it's largely a lot of the same people um, as one would expect, but it's different chairs and things like that. And so we made that request uh, and, uh, you know, I largely sort of defaulted to what uh, Tim, uh, one of the other authors, he was one of the original authors of 6724 wanted to do because, you know, he's the... He's the brilliant one. You know, I'm just the mouthpiece. And so, you know, we we uh, you know, we presented there. He and I did a co-presentation uh, at uh, IETF 117, which Ed was actually at. I got to see Ed for the first time in person in like what, like eight years or something. Um, and it was extremely well received, like emphatically well received, which was something, you know, I didn't expect that. Um, because it's, you know, it's changing something fundamental. So, um, I think pretty much all but one person was like, let's adopt this as quick as possible. Let's get this done. Um, and, but what we do is we suggest trimming out two of these other things, which, you know, one of the, uh, one of the, uh, folks that was, that didn't like it said, I don't, you know, I don't like these two other things. Um, and so we rewrote pieces of it, simplifying it down to essentially just changing the, the preference table. Um, and I think we're, once it's got finished with the adoption, like there's one minor change that we have to make. Um, but it went into adoption call right away after that. 
Yeah, that was a big deal. So congrats on that, because because I was I was also equally surprised that there were people that were stating that this needed to get out as quick as possible. Yeah, um, due to due to the fact of trying to get it implemented across as many OS platforms as quickly as possible to try and get the industry to move forward to to sort of fix this structural the structural issue, right? And yeah, the, so the other thing that was really encouraging, um, so the process typically, from my perspective, and again, I am but a novice is you know you write a you write a draft you send it to the list you ask for a time slot at some point either you i, I don't know what the actual official uh you know right way to do this if there is one is but someone asks for um working group adoption uh i have asked for it myself in the past um and uh this time i think the i think tim asked for working group adoption consideration uh, which happens on the mailing list. And during that, uh, someone actually wrote, you know, we've essentially litigated working group last call, which is the next step in the working group adoption call. And uh, a couple other people agreed, like, you know, this is, we've litigated this thing already. So, you know, once it goes through the um, adoption process, hopefully it'll go into working group last call which is the next step before it goes up past the working group into the, you know, into the next uh, group of, of uh, folks uh, at, at the IETF. And then um, I think it, you know, works its way through that and becomes uh, official at that point once that process is done, but it's happened very fast. Yeah. This is unusually fast for, for, for something, but I think it's a very clear change that needs to happen. So I think everyone recognizes that. Um, and and realizes the importance of the you know long term health of V six adoption. This needs to happen. Yeah, I mean, I think it's also uh, important that uh, that I recognize that um, Brian Carpenter has answered a lot of my questions. He's been very very supportive and helpful to you know to me in particular um, in the background. You know, I'll bounce questions off of him, and he's very. Uh, He's very forthcoming and very helpful, and he's, you know, eye-wateringly knowledgeable about this kind of stuff. And so he's helped us um, informed, uh, you know, uh, some stuff on the on the back end for us yeah, as and well. Brian, and for those in the audience that may not know, Brian has has been involved with uh, V six ops and maintenance for years. I mean, decades at this point, and part of and has authored many of the original helped author many of the original RCs in relations to V6. So, yeah, so he's I mean, we, we all stand on the shoulders of giants and, and, you know, I'm no exception to that. <laughs> so, Yeah, for sure. For sure. Well, I mean, it's, I think it's hopefully folks understand why this is going through and hopefully they understand why we're doing this as a topic, because this will directly impact you. You are as a end user, as a, as an operator going to see a shift in behavior, assuming that everything moves forward with what, you know, Nick is 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 uh, moving through through the IETF right now. That ULA will actually change in status from from a, you know from operating system basis, and you need to actually know when those changes are occurring and and uh, how they're going to impact you. And hopefully, we will have some follow up shows talking about when this stuff is actually getting implemented in OSs, so we actually see this consistent sort of behavior that we want. There obviously are going to be a long set of of OSs that are going to fall into different categories, and it's, and we you still see this today. If you're still running something like Windows, you know something older than Windows Seven or anything else, 
older than that, you're still going to be on 3484 instead of 6724. You can update yourself to 6724 by changing your prefix policy table, but things like that are, are going to occur. So you sort of have like this, you're going to maintain this little spreadsheet that sort of talks about, well, these classes of devices are going to behave one way. And then I have another class of devices that are going to be 6724. And then I don't know what you guys are officially calling the update for 6724. Does it say six, stay 6724 or do they issue a new number or do they do, do a bias or what? It, what's... What's it's not a it's not a dash bias or bis or whatever. Yeah. Um, it'll be an update. I'm not sure how that manifests in the uh, in the, you know, in the official yeah. numbering. Um, it would be cool just because it would be cool to have a RFC number with my name on it. But at the end of the day, you know, I just want the behavior. Yeah. So I'm not, I'm not quite sure what happens at that point. But I think we'll if we're really lucky, we're going to find out. But yeah, this will this will affect pretty much eventually, you know, ideally it affects any Everything. device that runs IPv6 period. Right. Every single device. So, yeah. So Rick, uh, I, guess, I guess, Nick, you'll have your fingerprint on every single device uh, that exists out on the internet. Though. Well, <laughs> you guys will too, because each one of you is uh, listed as a contributor at the bottom. So <laughs> uh, couldn't okay. happen without everybody in this call. Uh, we don't take the blame. <laughs> <laughs> Only the glory. That's yeah, right. I know, right. When it all goes horribly wrong. Um, you know who to blame. The blame will be, blame will be on the, the person who's first in the author list, which is me. <laughs> That's you. <laughs> it was all Nick. He well, talked us into it. Yeah. And <laughs> <laughs> so, so we covered why it's fast tracked, sort of how it's narrow scoped, you know, to sort of, you know, make sure it's addressing the right stuff. And we talked through what happens next, but I, I guess let's talk a little bit about what some of the other requests were that actually happened that I thought were really interesting at the meeting. Um, Cause there were some, there were some folks that piped up uh, and I think uh, Eric Finke was one of them, right? It was the first one to say yeah. like, Hey, I'd like to see some other changes done. Uh, why don't you cover what those were and maybe some of the rationale behind it? Yeah. Um, so the biggest one was the one that you mentioned uh, and it's the only one I actually remember off the top of my head uh, is he uh, requested that we demote RFC 1918 space as well uh, in the source address selection. So RFC actually, 6724, it, oh, sorry, go ahead. Well, it, to actually break it out, because right now IPv4 mm -hmm. is represented as a singular V6 address uh, prefix, right? It covers all of it. And so what Eric's talking about is saying like, hey, we should actually break out, you know, RFC 1918, you know, 10 dot 192, you know, the 172, to, uh, every single one of those specific, you know, you know, eight, 12, 16, um, yep. uh, of address space, it should be broken out and they should have a different preference, a priority and, 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 uh, and, and presence level, um, set. So that way you can sort of tune and control what sets of behaviors you want. Um, which I thought was an interesting request and maybe, you know, and it's, 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 it certainly warrants more discussion, I think, in terms of, yeah, the use cases um, I, I definitely be, you know, up for talking through all of those and maybe do some, doing some further testing to see, you know, it, you know, in reality, how that affects behavior, um, which I have not done yet, but, uh, we, we've currently, that's not in the draft. Um, right. and the, the reason being not that we don't think it's a good idea. Cause I, I definitely think it warrants more, you know, a little bit more research and, and, uh, discussion, but only to keep, this very simple 
Um, and to, because it's we want it to be fast tracked, we're keeping out most of everything else that would potentially be controversial and slow it down. Right. So, um, yeah, that was an interesting one because I, you know, I, I can't think of a reason off the top of my head. Again, I haven't. This is sort of off the cuff here, but why that would cause a whole bunch of issues because, you know, he purposely said only RFC 1918 space. So not this, you know, 100.64 slash 10, um, you know, CGN space, but just specifically internal RFC 1918 space, um, which is interesting, you know, cause I, I purposely asked that, you know, were you talking all private space or just this? And he said, no, just this. Yeah. Um, I, think I, I think that does warrant some discussion. Yeah, I I think what it it requires is a little bit of thought and analysis to sort of work through the use case and conditions and sort of present them through and and say, here's the advantage of of why you should do this and what flexibility it gives operators in terms of capabilities, both security operators and network operators. I think this, I think Eric was Mm -hmm. primarily thinking from the security posturing standpoint of giving me a a little bit more granularity from a knob basis to, 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 you know, sort of describe what set of, of behaviors you want for things that are very common in enterprise deployments to use that, you know, RFC 1918 space in a specific way. So I think, I think that's what he was chasing after. I think it's a good idea. I think it's something that warrants more discussion, but like you said, it would take too long in the, in the mailing list to sort of work through all of that along with yeah. meetings in person. And I think this core fundamental change needs to happen pretty much immediately. It probably should have happened mm-hmm. a decade ago. <laughs> right? Yeah. <laughs> But um, yeah, I think that's I think that's where um, maybe the next phase of of discussion needs to happen. You know, once this thing is pushed across the finish line, well, it kind of points to the 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 distance between say use cases that are being discussed in a forum versus test cases where you're actually going back and seeing how the you know for something that's proposed and hasn't been adopted, then you know the, the, you need to make that distinction as well. But I think right. I mentioned it in the context of what Nick's been able to accomplish by you know bringing actual test case data and examples to to the forum to you know to the ITF to be able to say look this is this is how it's actually behaving in the real world um and that's you know it's still astonishing that that's kind of rare like a rare uh, I don't I don't know maybe maybe it isn't in my my people view of, of what goes on in the ITF, you know, maybe it isn't as, as rare as I think it is, but it just seems to me that, you know, it's, it's, it's it exceedingly hard to have uh, uh, an abundance of test cases to be able to point to, to say, look, this is how things are actually working or how things are actually being deployed. And we should make changes based on this, as opposed to, you know, we think this might be how things shake out and, and, you know, nobody has a crystal ball to say, this is how operators are actually going to deploy this aspect of the protocol. So I, I recognize that that's a, you know, a tough thing to, to sort of tease out, but, but I did want to point that out that I, you know, that, that's the success with making progress in that setting has, I think a lot to do with the, the quality of the, you know, the, the operational test deployment information that's being brought to the group to say, look, this is what's actually happening. And, uh, and, and it, and it's great to hear that, that that's actually something that's, you know, helped move things along in, in the way that it should. So. And I think that that's one of the reasons that it got any traction in the beginning is because I was basically just providing like, here's what I'm seeing. Can someone else validate this for me? Like, what am I? Because I never want to assume that I'm right, because as soon as I assume that I'm right, then, you know, I'm going to start making mistakes. I want to be double checked on these things. And so, you know, the original testing was all I have fairly, you know, 
elaborate lab that I have available to me. So I can test a lot of this stuff. And, and I do, I mean, that's part of what my day to day job is, is, you know, testing scenarios out. And, and so, you know, as I'm providing these things, I, 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 you're right. I, I haven't seen a whole lot of other, uh, uh, people or, or, you know, any other data that's been like as verbosely pasted as mine was. And I'm not saying mine's better or worse than anybody else's, but that's just how I think, right? I, I never trust something until I can break it. And, you know, so that's just how I operate. Like I'll build it and then I'll break it because I want to see how to fix it. Yeah. And there were some initial naysayers who said, no, it doesn't behave that way. And you're like, well, okay, well, show me, you know, show me otherwise. And here's my test cases. Here's what I did. And then there, there are a handful of folks who came back and said like, no, it does work exactly that way. <laughs> this is clearly yeah. not how we wanted it to work or, or, you know, at least our current mindset is this is not how we want it to work. I w- I'm not saying that the ITF, you know, a decade or 15 years ago, didn't think that this was exactly how they wanted it to work. And, you know, I don't know if we'll necessarily ferret that out, but it doesn't really matter what we want to have it work like is what we're proposing. And so I think that's really important. Uh, important dis- distinction and and people were able to also third-party validate and brian was super important in that area brian yes did provided just a tremendous amount of feedback to the rest of the team saying like no it really does behave this way here's here you know you know it's uh it, it really is doing the things that 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 nick is stating and here's here's some examples from other os's too of, of yeah because one thing i don't have surprisingly enough is i you know i have access to you know extremely high-end carrier routers and you know virtualization i don't have any windows systems (laughs) i don't i don't even know that i'd know how to run one so but i have lots of (laughs) systems and maps and you know routers and switches and those kind of things but like he provided um some really important data for you know arguably the largest uh install base of user operating system and i think that's probably what what sold it because you know, I think that, you know, a lot of the examples that are given and, and there tends to be this sort of um, view that comes from highly technical people that are probably running Linux for most things. But Linux is a wonderful operating system because you can see, you know, it's like a mechanical watch that has a transparent back. You know what I'm talking about? Mm-hmm. Self-winding watches. You can see all the gears. You know, Mac isn't like that. Like, I don't even know how to look at the preference table. I've never been able to figure that out on an, on an Apple system. Windows system, you, if you know how to do it, you can dig it out. It's maybe yep. not quite as straightforward as a Linux box, but, you know, you can sort of do that too. But you have to look at it from all those different angles, right? Because most people with the, you know, the definition of most being, you know, literal, like there are more of these than anything else are running Windows. And well, that, so need, that that's a really important perspective to to have. Yeah, you need NetSH in, in order to be able to modify it, and you need if you just want to see it, it's you know it's the git dash net prefix policy uh, PowerShell command line will will display stuff for you. But yes, uh, you're absolutely right. And Brian was critical in providing all that yep. feedback back to the group, and and someone who with his particular background and, and sort of recognized status within the group, uh, once he pipes up, I think that sort of quelled a few <laughs> folks who were saying it wasn't true, which I think was yeah. helpful. 
Yeah, sure. but thankfully there's been a 180 and we are now, I think we're cooking with butter at this point. You know, it's, <laughs> it's probably going to happen. Well, I mean, um, are there other RFC drafts or, or updates we should be paying attention to? Is there other things that are on radar that you find interesting or things that folks should pay attention to? Uh, there's a couple that I'm working on. Uh, so there's one that I haven't published yet because I need some more data on it. Actually, this would be the perfect megaphone to maybe get some of this stuff. Like I, I'm trying to write a um, a document that will, if it is uh, you know accepted, would take NPTV6. It, its aim would be to move NPTV6 from an experimental RFC to a um, you know standard. Um, so there's a distinction between those two things. And NPTV6 is currently experimental. It is an RFC, but it's it's in the experimental bucket. Um, so what you know, what that requires, just based on the history I've seen other protocols go through, is you know, you have to have um more than one vendor supporting it. You have, you know, commercially supported, um, probably an open source support for it, which all that stuff exists. And then you need real world deployments. Um, and I have one um, that I can write about and I need maybe two more that are, uh, you know, that are able to be uh, publicly disclosed that we can write into this document and then submit it for, you know, request a change in NPTV6. So and that's working, one that has, you're working that? with Fred, you're working with Fred Baker on that one, right? Yeah, he was so that's the I'm, I'm taking this find the original authors and get them involved thing. You know, I'm taking it all the way. <laughs> so he was one of the original authors, both of the original authors, uh, actually, of NPTV6 that I've been communicating with. So um, and both of them are, are on board with this. So that, that's something that I really just need more examples. Um, and all I'll right, do audience. all the writing, um, <laughs> you know, if, if folks want to give me those. Uh, or if you want to help write it too, I wouldn't be opposed to that either. Um, so we got that one going on. We've got a resurrected um, ULA use case document that, so I wrote one, you know, here are the only valid use cases for ULA. And it was, you know, I kind of threw it together just to get discussion going. And someone pointed out like, hey, there was an adopted draft like years ago that was, that already tried to do this. And so I went and found the authors of that and said, hey, I want to reboot this and I'll drive it. And so we've done that as well. Cool. Um, so I need to, there's a couple of updates I need to put into that uh, also. And then there's mm -hmm. a current one in discussion right now, which is expanding the documentation prefix space. That was right, yeah, I forgot about that. Yeah, that's actually under, I, I believe, uh, working group adoption call should be over for that or really close. Really close. Um, and, and, and it has, Really, I think pretty much everyone has agreed to adopt it and work on it. Um, and again, I went and found the original author, uh, Jeff Houston, uh, and said, "Hey, let's make let's let's modernize this, right? Like we're we're first class citizens now. Let's uh, let's uh, let's uh, expand this." And he was all about it. Um, and so he and I threw that uh, document together in really record time. And, you know, Jeff has also got a significant amount of clout and he's been driving that. Uh, so I suspect we'll have working group adoption. If, if the votes in the mailing list are any indication that should be adopted soon. 
Um, yeah, I agree. Now, what we do to expand it, you know, that still remains to be seen. But I think the the agreement is, yes, this needs to be worked on. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. So that's that's very cool. I, I can't say uh, thank you enough for how much effort you've been put in and, and how many things you've been getting across the finish line. It's quite amazing to watch. Uh, it's very cool. <laughs> you're, you're a better man than I for putting, through, putting through all of that. <laughs> I enjoy it. I mean, I think it's a pretty widely known secret that the best way to motivate me is to tell me I can't do something. So <laughs> it's one of those things where the more the more pushback I get, the more I want to, you know, unless it becomes futile. But uh, <laughs> even then, sometimes I don't uh, let go soon enough. Uh, totally understood. Yeah. I was gonna say it's, it's my skateboarding background, right? You know, it's like for every skateboarding trick you see landed, there's a thousand to 10,000 tries that never worked out. And that's just <laughs> how my brain still works. <laughs> was there anything else you wanted to close up with any, uh, besides the obvious call for, if you've got MPTV six as a use case, please reach out and, and, and let Nick know so he can, you can help write that through on, on that one. Was there anything else you were looking for in terms of follow-up or support? If you're interested in any of these, we really suggest you follow the V6 Ops mailing list and the and the six-man mailing list on the ITF and, and make your voices yeah. So For yeah, sure. Clear. I mean, that was going to be what I said. Like, get on the mailing list. You don't have to participate. You can just kind of listen. But when, but when it comes time to, you know, vote for things, it's, you know, rough consensus and running code is sort of the foundation of the uh, IETF. So rough consensus means the people that want the things have to vocalize that they want them and they need them. Um, so if you need these things um, and you want to participate, then get on there and say, I support this or I do not support this. I think it's dumb or, how you know, whatever your opinion is, it, it is, you know, it's worth voicing it. Right. You, you have a voice. You should use it. Um, and regardless of if it's in support of something that I'm doing, you should you, you know, you should you should participate, you know, because we're the ones that are built. You know, what is it? Willy Wonka says we are the dreamers of the dreams. We're the music makers. So let's let's do that. Like, get involved. Yeah, very cool. Can't agree more. Well, unlike V6, we've run out of space for this podcast. <laughs> Thanks to today's guest. Nick, how do folks get a hold of you? What's the best way for them to reach out and chat? Um, you know, I, I have an email or um, I'm on Mastodon at uh, forwardingplane at dial.modem.show. Um, I'm on X or Twitter or whatever it's called, but I don't really look <laughs> at it much anymore. You can, if you at me, I'll see it eventually. Um, I'm not actually on Mastodon that much either. But again, if you at me, I'll see it. Yeah, LinkedIn uh, is, is probably a good way to reach out. Um, and yeah, and, LinkedIn, and uh, I'm around. I'm not hard to find. My my last name is fairly unique, so just Google for it, and you'll you'll find me. Well, you can reach the IPv6 Buzz podcast on Twitter at IPv6 Buzz. I'm still just going to call it Twitter because everyone knows what it is. Uh, you can also hit up each one of us on Twitter via um, uh, Thomas at IPv6 Tom. Scott is at Scott Hogan. I'm at E Horley. And, you know, Twitter seems to be a little sketchy these days. So you can always head over to packetpushers.net slash FU to send follow-up questions and comments about the show. You can also put anything you want in there to reach out to Nick. We'll go ahead and get along to him. Thanks for listening to the IPv6 Buzz. You can find us on the Packet Pushers or any of your favorite podcast apps. Just search for IPv6 Buzz. And if you like the show, please give us a rating on iTunes, Spotify, et cetera. 
And if you like this podcast, we recommend you check out Heavy Networking, Day 2 Cloud, and the Network Break Podcast, plus all the other great technical content over at packetpushers.net. So long and until next time, we'll see you on the internet. The IPv6 internet, that is. Thanks for listening to IPv6 Buzz, a podcast devoted to truth, justice, and 128 bits of address space. IPv6.